Well, thank you. It's been a delight to be here. My wife was planning to come. We had the plane ticket and everything. We had a health issue with one of our children, and she wasn't. So this might be a bit unorthodox, but I just want to publicly recognize Mark and Wendy. Uh, if you guys could just stand up. If you guys could give fellow members a hand. They, they made it possible for me to be free to talk with people this weekend. I'm so grateful for the way you guys have served, and I know it's the spirit here of Southlands, but you have represented them very well, and I'm very grateful. Let's, let's begin with a prayer. Father, I just thank you for the delight we can find in your words. Sometimes, Lord, there are convicting words and fearful words and sobering words. Sometimes you let us hear from your truth messages that just say life can be so good. And I pray that your word would speak that way to us today. Open up our eyes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Wayne Williams grew up a Chicago Cubs fan because that was his dad's favorite team. It was his childhood. He and his dad would listen to games as they drove around the city, occasionally visit games or watch games on TV. And if you know anything about Major League Baseball, you know that for many years, being a Chicago Cubs fan was an exercise in futility. It had been over 100 years since they'd been back to the World Series. But like true fans do, father and son made a promise when, not if, when the Cubbies made it back to the World Series, they would listen to the games together. And Wayne wouldn't have had it any other way. It was his childhood to be there with his dad. If the Cubbies were there, he wanted to be with his dad when it happened. So when the Cubbies did make it back in 2016, it was actually a little bit of a bittersweet moment for Wayne. It was sweet because the Cubs were in the big show, but it was bitter because it was going to be pretty difficult for him to keep that promise. Wayne now lives in North Carolina. His dad was in Indiana. They'd made the promise when he was a kid. But he kind of grew up with the thinking, if you make a promise, you keep a promise. So he traveled all the way from North Carolina to Indiana where his dad was. But there was another thing that made it a little bit more difficult. His dad had actually passed away some years before. But Wayne still wanted to hold true to his promise. So what he did, he went to this father's gravesite. I have a picture here. Set up a camp chair. Turn on his phone. And he and his dad listened to the Cubs win the World Series together. I don't know if that story moves you as much as it moves me, but the story of a guy who would hold to his promise that seriously, a promise you could say, well, it's just sentimental, and my dad isn't even really here now, it doesn't count, but just somebody that would hold to their word like that it just moves me and inspires me, and maybe one of the reasons it does so is because I was challenged, and my life was changed, and my marriage was transformed some years back when God reminded me of a promise I had made. It was a promise I made on my wedding day. If you use traditional vows and you're married, you probably made the same promise, and it goes like this. I promise to love and to cherish until death do us part. That may be the last time in my life I even thought about the word cherish. I like to focus on love. I'd done a lot of sermons on love. In every seminar on marriage I've done, love was always the last session as it was yesterday. I think love is key, but I never even considered this promise I'd made to cherish my wife until I was convicted by God some years ago. You made this promise to your wife, Lisa. I want you to figure out what it means and to begin to put it into 
practice. And it was amazing to me because I already thought we had a pretty good marriage. But now pursuing cherish instead of love gave me a new bar to shoot for. And it entered us into a new dimension of marriage that we had never experienced. It's a dimension of marriage, if I could be so bold, that I believe God wants to call the church into. To make our marriages just seem different from the world. To represent God more clearly and to represent the truth of his word more precisely. Love, I believe, will always be the foundation of marriage. It's the substance of marriage. It's the nourishing part of marriage. But cherishing is what makes marriage delicious. You could call love the bread of marriage. And you could call cherishing the jam. It's what makes it go down a lot easier. And often we settle for far less than I believe that God would have us settle for. One of the ways to do this is just to compare the way the Bible talks about love. We're going to use that famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13, 4. And then we're going to juxtapose that with passages from the Song of Songs that at least conceptually talk about two people who cherish each other. And you're going to see how they just are related and complementary, but just a little bit different. So according to 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is about being gracious and altruistic. Love is patient. Love is kind. But according to Song of Songs 4.10, cherish is about being enthusiastic and enthralled. How much more pleasing is your love than wine? And the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Love tends to be quiet and understated. Love doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. But cherish boasts boldly. And loudly, my beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. So if you love your spouse, you're not going to speak ill of your spouse. But if you cherish your spouse, you're going to regularly brag about your spouse. Love thinks about others with selflessness. Love is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. But cherish thinks about its beloved with praise. Your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. So if you cherish your spouse, you're thinking regularly about how wonderful your spouse is rather than how much they're disappointing you. Love doesn't want the worst for someone. Love does not delight in evil. But cherish celebrates the best in someone. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. If you cherish your wife or your husband, you privately celebrate your spouse's strengths. Love puts up with a lot. Love always hopes, always perseveres, but Cherish enjoys a lot. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. So you know how you, do you tolerate your spouse or do you enjoy your spouse? Love is about commitment. Love endures all things. Love never fails. But Cherish is about delight and passion. Your name is like perfume poured out. And so the question is, are you committed to your spouse or do you desire your spouse? Here's one of the biggest differences for me. Love reminds me of my obligations. I'm supposed to serve, sacrifice, be loyal, be committed, hang in there. Those are good and biblical and necessary things. But cherish doesn't focus me on my obligations. It turns my mind to focus on the beauty, the wonder, the joy, how much I adore my spouse, which creates an entirely different experience for my wife. I'm not in it just because I made a promise and I can't get out of it. I'm learning to train my mind and my heart to behold her in a way that is fulfilling to her, that is affirming to her. 
that looks different because I believe it's supernaturally touched by God. Love and cherish never compete. I want to knock down love to elevate cherish because frankly, without love, cherish won't last. It'll be a sentimental thought. You hear the word, yeah, I, I might have said that. But without love, it can't be sustained. But here's where I think Christians have settled for too much. Without cherish, love can feel like a duty and a discipline more than a delight. And so we see Christian marriages that are staying together and gritting their teeth because well, we promise and we're going to hold to it. But does that represent the delight God has in his sinful people? Does that represent the joy of reconciliation that we find in Christ and what comes to a home when the spirit is within us? I think we've settled for less in our marriage if we just keep the marriage together rather than saying, we didn't just promise to love, i.e. stay together. We promised to cherish, to delight in each other. So to cherish my wife is to develop a mindset, attitudes, and action. Those are three things. A mindset, attitudes, and actions that make me hold her in high regard. Now, I can't put a whole book in, in, in one sermon, but let me get started on how we can begin to move in that direction. And the first point that we have to do if we want to have a cherishing marriage is to remember that we made a promise. And many of you probably made that same promise. So I have to ask myself, I promised I would do this. Like, when, when is I going to say, well, you know, it doesn't really count anymore? Or am I going to hold to it if God is calling me to that? I said I would cherish her. Do I? Which means, men, your wives want more than knowing you're simply loved. They want to be cherished by you. In the Song of Songs 4-9, the husband says of his wife, You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes. It's a picture of a husband who's enthralled with his wife, and there's something about her presence that just makes him stop. What do you think that does to a wife when she knows she has that power over her husband in a world where she's frankly invisible to many, maybe taken for granted by her kids? But here is a man who says, you have stolen my heart, one glance of your eyes, and I'm a different person. My attention is on you. After I finished the book, but before it came out, I'd been living with this cherishing. It was on the top of my mind as I'm writing about it. And I'm a morning person. My wife isn't. So I'm usually up a couple hours before her, and she's usually up a couple hours after me. And so I had been working in my office, and our home office is right next to our master bedroom, when I heard my wife moving around, and I realized she was up. And I was surprised, because what happened, the best way to describe it, is my heart left. And I knew what she would do. She gets a drink of water right away. It's supposed to be a healthy thing to do. But I knew eventually I'd hear her shuffling down the hallway, and she'll open up the door of my office. She'll come, and she'll give me a hug and tell me about her dreams or what she has going on that day. And often it can be my favorite part of the day because when you cherish your spouse, them just being awake makes your day right there. And I was caught by surprise because here's what I found. And I think you'll find this too if you try it out. I began to cherish my wife because I was convicted by God and I was reminded I made a promise. But if you find, if you follow the Lord for a long time, you realize that obedience comes with personal blessings. We don't always obey to be blessed, but it's just the way God is calling us to a way of life where we're blessed. And I didn't realize how much joy I was adding to my life by trying to cherish my wife. Even though it's rather obvious logically that if you cherish your spouse, you're going to enjoy your day a lot more than if you're just tolerating your spouse. But wives, your husbands also want to be cherished. They might be suspicious of the words. 
when I was doing the book and I'd ask husbands what makes them feel cherished, they'd look at me like, do I have to turn in my man card if I say I want to be cherished? But they know the concept. I know a pastor of a pretty large church. He was with seven men. They, they were leaders in the church. He wanted to feel a, get a feel for what was going on in his marriage. And he asked all seven men, how many of your wives love you? Every hand went up. They said, how many of your wives like you? Every hand went down. Wives, every one of those men felt loved. None of them felt cherished. And that creates a different dynamic in marriage. It means a husband has to act out of altruism instead of a natural response. It just creates a different response from us. When they feel like, you know, I married a woman. She's a good Christian. She's not going to leave me. She's going to stay with me. But she tolerates me at best. It's a whole different dynamic in marriage. Just as you want to hear, you have stolen my heart, my sister, your bride. Your husband wants to hear Song of Songs 2, 3. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. Maybe not out here in the country of California. That might be a little too poetic for 21st century men. So if I were to put it in modern language, like Tom Brady among the quarterbacks is my husband in the NFL, right? One of the greatest of all time. We have some friends who are, are pretty well off, huge New England fans. They've lived up in Boston for a long time. So I live in Houston now, and the Super Bowl was there a couple years back. So they flew into Houston to go to the Super Bowl. And he was laughing, telling me how popular Tom Brady is in New England. He goes, you'd think people would kind of hate him, at least guys, because he's got everything. He's got the Hollywood handsome looks. Literally married to a supermodel, Giselle Bunchen. He's wealthy, but his wife makes more money than he does. He's in great shape. He's got a cool job, an NFL quarterback. He might play till he's 63, for all we know. I mean, he may be getting Social Security before he retires. It's just crazy. He says, you'd think people would just hate him because he's so successful. He goes, but when you take your city to nine Super Bowls and bring back six rings, he is beloved. And he was telling me the joke that was going around at the time that his husband woke up and his wife's hitting him over the head with a pillow. He goes, honey, what, what are you doing? She goes, I had a dream last night. You were having an affair with Giselle Bündchen. He goes, honey, that's absurd. I would never do that to Tom Brady. <laughs> now, here's the thing. I wouldn't be saying this in front of a group if I didn't believe it with all my heart. Cherishing is something we can choose. Infatuation seems to happen. We fall into it, and then we fall out of it. We can't get it back. Cherishing is chosen. Why? Because we're the people of God. And the same God who cherishes the imperfect us is more than capable of empowering us and equipping us to cherish our imperfect spouse. It's a journey. We have to give ourselves up to it. But it's something that can be chosen. Even if you think you are so far away from that, it's where God can take us. So the second thing, after we remember our promise, we have to change our mindset. Romans 12, 2 says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Christian transformation begins by thinking about things differently from God's perspective. And here's how we do that if we want to cherish. We have to go back to the Garden of Eden. One of the things that made Adam and Eve so unique, and I believe gave them the opportunity to have a marriage almost like any other, is this. For a brief period of time, Eve was literally 
the only woman in the world. There was no one Adam could compare her to. He couldn't say, well, she's smart, but she's not as funny as this one, or as winsome, or as athletic as this one. All Adam knew is this is what a woman is, and this is even more key, and this is what a woman is supposed to be. He couldn't knock her down with comparison. He couldn't wonder if she could be different. He had no idea that a woman could be any different than Eve because she was the only woman in the world. And the same thing was true of Adam. He was the only man in the world. And Eve had to receive him. Okay, this is what a man is. And he's not as strong as that one or emotionally involved as that one or as intelligent as that one. No, this is what a man is. And she would think this is what a man is supposed to be. On the day we get married, we have to go from evaluation to a commitment of contentment where we say, you are now my Eve and you are now my Adam. You are what a bride is supposed to be and you are what a woman is. And I'm not going to compare you. I'm not going to take your weaknesses and compare them to another woman's strength, whether I'm thinking physically, whether I'm thinking mentally, spiritually, personality or character. I'm going to learn to receive you as you are because if you don't receive your spouse as they are, you can't cherish them if they don't measure up to those around you. I would just ask you, because it's a temptation for all of us to compare our spouse. Has it ever helped? Comparing your spouse negatively to other spouses, has it ever, after you do that for 30 minutes, say, oh, I feel so much better about life now. <laughs> I'm brimming with joy because I realize how my spouse doesn't compare to that spouse. I mean, does it ever motivate your spouse to change? To in fact, it probably discourages them. They notice the light's gone out in your eyes, and they may even give up. But we're, some of us, we're, we're like that little boy with the loose tooth that hurts and keeps poking it with his tongue. Does it still hurt? Yeah. Does it still hurt? Yeah. Yeah. And, and we have to say, no, if I want to get to the place of cherishing my spouse, comparisons have to stop. Men, this is particularly true for us. And I don't want to just redu reduce this to appearance and physical things, but if you want your wife to feel cherished, we have to get to Song of Songs 6-9, where our wife hears us saying this, my dove, my perfect one, is the only one. Honey, it's not a competition. I'm thrilled with you. I'm delighted with you. I want you to be uh, the way you are. No comparisons of any kind. What I'm really asking us is to have the same attitude toward our spouse that others think we should have. I was doing a sacred marriage conference at a pretty large church uh, some years ago, and uh, I was sitting in the, the green room, and they came running. They said, Gary, we forgot to do a mic check. We can't open up the doors for people to come in. Can we do a mic check? Could you hurry up? So I'm rushing by, and my wife is setting up the book table. So now she's not here for you to meet her. But um, in defense of what I'm about to tell you, I can understand the misunderstanding made because my wife and I just don't look like we belong together, at least not since I lost my hair. She looks freakishly young to be my wife. One time she was working at a book table, and a guy said, you must be so proud of your daddy. And she said, I am, but he didn't write these books, right? So... She just, she just looks, she's very healthy. I mean, she's organic, all of that stuff. So she looks way younger than she is. People can't believe she just became a grandmother, all of that thing. So we're going by, and I didn't have time to stop because I said, we're in a rush. We need to get you into the sanctuary. But I wanted to acknowledge her. I didn't want to just pass by. So she's setting up the books. I just kind of smile and pat her on the rear end as I go by. I just, well, she doesn't mind. It's not demeaning. I wouldn't do it if she didn't like it. And so this middle-aged woman had been sitting across from the book table, and she saw this. She got this really nasty look on her face. She marches up to my wife. Is that Gary Thomas? 
And Lisa was just taken aback by her force. She goes, uh, yeah. She just got even, are you his wife? And I think Lisa just felt like I was being insulted. She wouldn't normally ever respond this way, but she couldn't help. She said, uh, no, he was with his wife last weekend. This weekend, it's my turn. <laughs> I said, honey, you can't say that. And she goes, honey, that's just not you in a million. I mean, you have your faults, but it's not that. That would never be. I go, she doesn't know that. She's never. She did set it right, just so you know. So there's not rumors going around there. But, but that woman had this notion that you only treat one woman that way. You only look at one woman that way. And that's what I want to have for myself. Not just if others are watching. This is why it's so key. Comparisons in your mind, people don't even see. Can I just plead with you? For your own joy. For your own happiness. When you begin to look at your spouse as Adam or Eve, it not only affirms your spouse, it floods your own soul with joy because you stop reducing the beauty of that. Uh, I, I mentioned this couple of ours that were friends and... Um, I think she got, when they got married, it was like a three or four carat diamond, which I think is pretty big, isn't it? And now I think they're coming up on their 25th anniversary, and she's talking like maybe a 10 carat diamond or something like that, which I don't, I don't know. I mean, that's like lifting weights, isn't it? I, I, I don't, I don't. But see, if most of you would see a three or four carat diamond, you'd say, Oh, what a diamond. But then you put it next to a 10 carat diamond. It's like, boy, you don't love me very much, honey. Look, at he's got a 10 And And we kind of do that. You can't cherish someone when they're being negatively compared to someone else. And so then the third thing we do is this. To cherish our spouse is to showcase your spouse. If you cherish something, you show it off. If you cherish something, you put it in a frame. Uh, if, if, if you just got engaged, you cherish your ring, you kind of walk around like this, everybody knows you're engaged. Uh, if guys that get a new car, they put a picture on Facebook, they want others to see the beauty of it, enjoy it as well. If we cherish our spouse, we learn to showcase them. What I loved about this, it completely changed the way I looked at my day. I used to wake up in marriage, and I would think, is my wife going to appreciate me? Is my wife going to notice me? But the thing is, that means my happiness is dependent on another person's actions. I can't choose whether she's going to do that. But when I now think to cherish her, I want to showcase her beauty to others, I can choose to do that. I can make certain that happens. An analogy I found that really brings this out is in the ballet community. A famous choreographer named George Balanchine, he's Russian-born, he's been in the U.S., had a huge impact here. And he has a famous phrase where he says, the ballet is woman. And what he means by that is that most people go to the ballet to see the ballerina. It's her strength, her beauty, her grace, her athleticism. And so the best male dancers, at least for couples dancing, know that their job is to just support the ballerina so that she can do things with him supporting her that she can't do on her own. He's not trying to step in front of her and show his muscles or her, his moves. He's to twist her, lift her, and turn her so that she can do more. And his job is done when he can... Throw her into the spotlight. She nails the landing. Everybody gets up in a thunderous standing ovation. And he just steps back in the shadows because his job was done. The ballerina is adored. That's his job. Sarah Jessica Parker narrated a documentary series on the New York Ballet Company. And when she was talking to couples about paired dancing, 
this analogy came through. So I'm going to show a clip from that documentary, but I just want you to see, imagine this in the context of marriage. And this doesn't have to be gender-based. Wives, you can think of yourselves as the male dancer when it comes to doing this in marriage. But just think how if this applied to marriage, how it would change our whole approach to marriage if we wanted to showcase our spouse like male dancers showcase the ballerinas. Let's look at the video. When a male dancer is paired with a ballerina, he can support, stabilize, lift, and turn her, allowing the partner to perform feats she could never do alone. One of my favorite parts of dancing is partnering. I love having a connection with someone on stage. Well, there's a saying we have that ballet is woman. The best thing I can do as a partner is to kind of disappear and make sure that everybody in the audience is enjoying her performance. Because it's not about you. It's about making the woman look beautiful. It takes true artistry to make a woman feel that safe on stage while she's trying to do all these different things. You just have to have that, that trust. It's not always perfect or safe, but usually they'll catch you before your head hits the ground. Usually. So, well, I, I got dropped on my head once. But. <laughs> Partnering's a lot about confidence, and you have to go for things, because if you don't go for it, then it doesn't work out. Right. Yeah. And a lot of these lifts I've never done before, and they're kind of scary. I'm sort of afraid of heights. With Craig, I'm not afraid at all. <laughs> well, I know, I know he's not going to drop me, right? Yeah, not yet. <laughs> If that was my daughter, I'd want Craig to be a little more confident about not dropping her on her head. But just try to take this and, and apply it to marriage. What if when you wake up, say, how do I help my spouse's greatest strengths be seen and appreciated by others? This isn't sentimental. I've talked to some people in the dance community, and, and, and one ballerina told me how when this most difficult move, the male dancer would just touch her on the hip to remind her, I got this, you can do this. And so you have to know your spouse's strengths, the ballerina's weaknesses, rather, because you know how to know where you need to show extra support. It's not to shame them. It's not to embarrass them. It's not to make them feel like they're less. It's just I, I recognize this is what's a challenge for you, so I'm going to be particularly strong in this area. But also we have to learn to appreciate and notice our spouse's strengths because that's what we want to highlight. That's what we want to see. That's how we turn our spouse so that others can see it. And when you begin to do that in marriage, what happens is I found that, that the more I cherish my spouse, the more I cherish my spouse because I will showcase her and others will appreciate her. And so that gets me more excited about her. And so I'm eager to showcase her even more. And so now I appreciate her even more when others notice it. And again, unlike infatuation that starts out here and then cherishing, you choose it. You remember your promise. You have the Adam and Eve mindset. You start to showcase your spouse and it slowly begins to build. I knew I'd moved a little bit down the road one time when um, Lisa and I had this couple we knew that had gotten married, and for their first anniversary, I thought of a present particularly for them. I mentioned to my wife, she says, oh, that's a great idea. Uh, I go, you need me to pick it out? She goes, no, I, wa I want to pick it out, but thanks for the idea. It's good thinking. Well, Lisa can be a little absent-minded, so a few days went by. I said, did we get the present? She goes, no, I forgot. I said, look, I'll pick it out. She goes, no, no, let me get it. I'm, I'm going to get it, and so she did. And she got it, she gave it to him. So the first time we saw him in person, the wife was just gushing 
to Lisa. It was so thoughtful. It was creative. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. It meant so much. Well, I'm walking into the room while this woman is, is gushing at my wife. And she sees me over her shoulder. She recognizes my presence. And so she thinks, well, she should probably bring me into it as well. So in really a pretty dismissive tone, it was, oh, and yeah, thank you too, Gary. It, it was like, she said, Gary, you and I both know you had absolutely nothing to do with this gift, but you married this amazing woman, so thank you for that. Why would I, 20 years ago, when I was just focused on loving my spouse, I might have said, what are you talking about? That gift was my idea, and I had to remind her to get it, and who do you think paid for it? Instead, why did I say, as I did, what present? Why am I trying to showcase my wife? Because when you cherish your spouse and somebody is bragging on her, I don't want to step in front of her. It gives me great pleasure. It gives me high joy to see others recognize the beauty that I see in Lisa. I'm like the male dad. Okay, my job is done. I've done that. Now, as a pastor who does some pastoral counseling with marriages, I live in a real world. I believe in realville. And I know for some of you think, I'm so far from being able to do this, Gary. I just don't even know that I could do it. There are a lot of practices of cherishing, but I just have time to mention one. To showcase your spouse to others, before you may feel like you can do that with integrity, maybe you have to showcase your spouse to yourself. I'm calling that practicing acts of cherishing. There are so many others. But this is the one I want to mention here with just a little bit of time. Showcase your spouse to yourself. How do you do that so that you have the eagerness to show her to others? Here's what I did one year. I stole this idea from another spouse. I got a blank journal. It had an empty page for every day of the year. And I spent 2016, this, or 2017, I think it was, and this is going to be Lisa's Christmas present, one of her Christmas presents at the end of the year. Every day I would just write down something Lisa did that day that I was grateful for, or something I appreciated about her. And I'd do it first thing in the morning, before I had a quiet time, before I started any work at all, I'd open up that red book, I'd sit before the Lord, okay, Lord, what can I remember about Lisa? What did Lisa do yesterday? What can I appreciate about her? And, and you, you know, if there are first 30 days, 60 days, you just kind of whip through it. But after about three months, you've got 90 things down. You can't keep writing the same thing. And I would find myself having to meditate at the start of every day about the best part of my wife the day before. What do you think that does to a husband's brain when he begins his day remembering and asking God to help him to remember the best part of his wife, the things that his wife did that he wants to thank her for, that he wants to recognize her excellence? I was terrified in the summer that I might lose it as I began to travel uh, I was writing that longhand so there was no record. I thought it would be more meaningful. And I thought, there's no way I could remember this. You've got 150, 160, 200 things in there. You know what? Even if I had lost it, I didn't. But if I had, it would have been a gift because it just made me think about my wife and talk about my wife and talk to my wife in an entirely different way. In fact, that year, I don't know that I ever asked God to change anything about my wife. Because when you've got a book written down of 250 excellent things about her. It just feels a little bit greedy. But God, can you tweak this or can you change that? And so after a year of showcasing my wife to myself, it made me even more eager and enthusiastic to showcase her to others. And here's the thing. When we 
do that. We develop, I believe, a new dimension of marriage that can take a tired and even a frustrating marriage and raise it to a new level. I was in Winnipeg a few Februarys ago, which I don't recommend any of you do. Uh, they Even in Canada, they call it winter peg. It is a level of cold that seeps in. I mean, it is, you're risking your life to fill up a gas tank before you go to the airport. I mean, seriously, it, it could be like 15, 20 below zero. I mean, it's just, it's so cold. But this one time I was glad because it was really icy. And so the guy that was taking me from the convention center uh, back to my hotel we had to drive slow. And he told me a story. I call it the tale of two marriages. Terry's first marriage was pretty traditional. He loved his wife. He was good to his wife. He didn't speak ill of his wife. He, you know, kind of had traditional roles. Um, and things were fine. He didn't notice anything wrong. They'd been married about 15 years when she came down. I believe it was ovarian cancer, and it was a five-year battle. In the last eight months, it became terminal, and Terry had to do everything. He had to cook, clean, shop. He took care of her. Because when you love your wife and she's dying, it's, it's what you do. She died, and he was single for four years. And when you're a single man, you've got to do everything for yourself because there's no one else to do it. And then he started dating another woman named Sharon, and she had never been married before. She was in her 40s. And they started to get serious, and Sharon's friends kind of warned her, you know, guys can be so entitled, and your life is okay. Are you sure you want to do it? And she, Well, Terry seems different. Well, they all do before you get married, but just, just trust me. And she goes, I, I think I want to give this a try. So they got married, and Terry said, Gary, I made a decision that I wanted to treat my second wife like I treated my first wife. The last eight months of our marriage. He goes, I started calling her princess to remind myself to treat her like a princess. And I realized, look, I had to do everything to take care of myself when I was single. Why don't I just keep doing that as a married man now and see what happens? And he told me, Gary, and real sadly, she also got sick after about 18 or 19 years. And so she died as well. So we had two marriages to look back on. He said, Gary, my second marriage was so much deeper and richer more satisfying and I would say even happier than my first marriage. Not because my second wife was better than my first wife. She wasn't. In terms of personality, spiritual maturity, just pleasantness to be around, they were about the same. But the difference is I cherished my second wife while I just stopped at loving my first wife. And a lot of you might be tempted as you're hearing me speak, say, this cherishing thing sounds wonderful. If I was married to someone else, <laughs> if I could start over and choose with this in mind, I could have a cherishing marriage. Because we think to have a cherishing marriage, we need to change our spouse. Terry would say, no, change your attitude. Raise the bar. It is good to love your spouse. It is good to be committed and to persevere. You speak a powerful spiritual truth when you do that, but it is transcendent. It is sacred to love and cherish your spouse. It gives you satisfaction. It makes your spouse feel like they're special in a world that takes them for granted or that looks at them as if they don't even exist. And it will flood your own soul with joy when you cherish above all else the person you get to wake up with every day. Let's pray.